Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Goodall, a world-famous primatologist and anthropologist best known for her work with chimpanzees 60 years ago in Tanzania. Now, she has far too many accomplishments to mention, but her life's work has focused on conservation and animal welfare issues, which we discuss in the course of our conversation, and the Jane Goodall Institute, which of course she's the founder of, does important work in nearly 100 countries around the world, including engaging young people through its Roots and Shoots program. I've been looking forward to meeting Dr. Goodall at an event at the end of March before the world fell apart, so I'm very grateful that she made time for this conversation. Dr. Goodall, thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. 60 years ago now, no academic background, you dropped everything and you did something studying chimpanzees in a while that no one had done before. How in the world does one manage to do something like that? Well, it was all, you know, a question of everything slotting into place because I wanted to go to Africa and live with animals and write books about them when I was 10. Uh, went on wanting to do that. Everybody laughing at me. I was a girl and the, we didn't have money and Africa was far away and girls didn't do that sort of thing. And she said, if you really want to do something like this, then you have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And then if you don't give up, you may find a way. So anyway, left school, no money for university, had an invitation from a school friend to go and stay, worked in a hotel as a waitress to save up the money. And out there, I heard about the late Dr. Louis Leakey, famous paleontologist. And I went to see him because people said I should if I cared about animals. And I think he was impressed by how much I knew because I read every book I could. And anyway, it led to this amazing opportunity to go and live with and learn from the creature most like us on the planet, the chimpanzee. I mean, it was amazing. And having the video evidence, I'd read that people were more dismissive until you had the video footage in hand that was confirming what you were telling them in the first place. Yes. Well, you know, there were, there were three factors there. And there were my observations with a few photographs I managed to take. And then the geographic sent money and Hugo and Lowick to, to um, photograph and film me and the chimps. And in addition to to that footage that he got, there was the fact that science was finding out how biologically like us chimpanzees are, you know, sharing 98.6% of our DNA and, and many other physiological similarities. So those three together, science had to come off its reductionist way of thinking. When I say that, what I mean is when I finally got to Cambridge, I was told I'd done everything wrong, that I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names, they should have had numbers, that I couldn't talk about them having personality, minds capable of problem solving, and certainly not emotions, because those were unique to us. But I had a wonderful teacher when I was a child who taught me that at least in that respect, the professors were wrong. And here he is behind me, my dog. And you can't <laughs> be alive in a meaningful way with any animal. I don't care what it is. And not no, we are not the only beings on the planet with personalities, minds, and emotions. 
I have said in Parliament and in advocating for stronger animal rights that animals think, feel, love, and deserve our compassion and respect. And as someone in Parliament who cares a lot about climate change and better protecting animals and changing attitudes and the way that we treat animals in our society, I have long looked up to your work. And so I'm speaking to you at a very opportune time in that September 23rd, we are going to have a throne speech that resets the government's agenda. Our prime minister has been in the media saying he wants to be very ambitious and he has used language like we need to build back better. And it's not a matter of getting back to the status quo. It's about rebuilding our society to be even better than it was before. And when you hear that phrase, build back better, and, and you think of an ambitious outlook and a reset for the Canadian government or other governments around the world, what would building back better mean for you? Well, I think before before answering that, it's important to stress that this pandemic that's keeping us all apart from each other, you know, and we're human beings, we rely on, even if it's just a handshake, preferably a hug or something like that. And this pandemic was at least in part brought on by our disrespect of nature and our disrespect of animals you know, destroying a forest, pushing animals in closer contact with people, hunting them, killing them, eating them, selling them in the wildlife markets in Asia and the bushmeat markets in Africa, and our intensive farms where we have billions of animals. And in all these situations, unhygienic conditions, of course, it's tremendously cruel, but some people don't seem to care about that. But the unhygienic conditions and the crowding and the stress mean it's an ideal environment for pathogen, in this case, COVID-19, a virus, to jump from an animal to a person and see the result of that. And the same disrespect of nature has led to climate change. So when we think about resetting, um, I, I just wish that all politicians wanted to reset and not like some are desperately keen to get back to business as usual. And business as usual will destroy the planet for sure. It's what brought us to this situation in the first place. Maybe before we even get to the, the larger conversation about priorities in the course of climate change and uh, and building back better in some respects, the you are reiterating in some respects uh, report from the UN Environment Program in July, which is talking about pandemic risk and preventing future pandemics and highlights our intensive animal agriculture, highlights the wildlife trade. And you wrote in early April, we are now feeling the true cost of wildlife trafficking and the destruction of the natural world that brings us into closer contact with wildlife. That includes climate change, of course. And Let's stop stealing the future from our children and from the other species with whom we share our home. As a parliamentarian and as someone who has access to Health Canada or Agriculture Canada and to our government to say, here's how we should change the laws as they relate to wildlife trade or intensive agricultural practices. Uh, is that where, if you were in my shoes, you would spend a great deal of your efforts? Absolutely. It's absolutely crucial. We will get through this pandemic. We always do. We got through the Black Death and the Spanish flu. Um, then we'll face the even greater threat. Well, we're facing climate change now, but the pandemic has kind of pushed it aside. But actually, it's a far greater threat than the pandemic because it's the, the whole future of, of life on this on this earth. And so 
we we have to come out of this endemic epidemic pandemic um, and try and create a better relationship, a better working relationship with the natural world and with the animals and respect them and realize that we are part of the natural world. We depend on it and we depend on it for clean air and water and regulating temperatures and rainfall and things like that. And our disrespect, look what it's done to the planet. So we somehow have to have that. We have to create a different mindset where we're not always, or at least our leaders in business and government, many governments, many businesses, not all, um, are so keen on unlimited economic development. And already in some places, the natural resources, which are finite of this planet, are being used up faster than nature can replenish them. And, you know, if we, if we carry on in the same old way, it's going to be a disaster. So we need to reset our goals and we need to be prepared to put environmental protection at least on a level with economic development instead of always. It's always, I don't like to say trumped, but maybe it's the right word in this instance, trumped by unlimited economic development, which doesn't make sense. No, and and reset our focus as sustainable growth, not growth at all costs. Yes, absolutely. And of course, in order for this to happen, you know, there are three major problems that we have to overcome. First of all, poverty, because if you're living in abject poverty, you're going to cut down the trees to grow food to feed your family because you have to, you're going to fish the last fish. You're going to buy the cheapest supermarket food. You can't afford to say, did it harm the environment? Is it cheap because of child slave labor? That sort of thing, because you've got to survive. So number one, alleviate poverty. Number two, reduce the unsustainable lifestyle of most of the rest of us. I include myself. Probably you have far more than you actually need. I do. I try to leave a light environmental footprint. I do think about, you know, saving electricity and all that kind of thing. I could do more. And then population growth, which it's become a politically sensitive topic, but that's ridiculous, really, because right now we have 7.2 billion people on the planet. And as I've said, we're already in some cases using up natural resources too fast. It's predicted in 2050 that there'll be 9.7 billion, closer to 10 billion. So what's going to happen? We can't just ignore this. And when people say, oh, you're, you know, damning the developing world because they have more children, we forget that one child in an affluent society uses up many, many, many times more natural resources than 10 or more in some um, developing countries. I recall reading uh, scientists warning to humanity in, I want to say, November of 2018 or 2019, and they set out a number of categories of action and they identify population growth, but they identify the solution in a very positive way, which is 
educating women and, and girls around the world and empowering women and girls around the world and stronger access to resources for birth control and, and education on that front as well. But these resources that we take for granted in Canada, if they were widely available around the world, would would address the, that third problem that you've identified. And certainly in the course of the throne speech, I mean, you've in some ways identified my top two issues in the course of the throne speech, which is addressing poverty in a significant way. And I think one lesson we've learned in this pandemic has been that our social safety net wasn't fit for purpose. And we need to ensure that there is a minimum floor below which no one will fall if we're serious about our social safety net and ensuring that we are serious about reducing emissions and setting Canada and the world on a credible path to net zero by 2050. Yes. And, you know, we're doing the Jane Goodall Institute is doing a lot in Africa to improve education for girls, to empower women with microcredit opportunities based on Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank. And I'll give you a tip as a politician. Don't talk about population control. I invented something. When I was first told, I mean, you must never talk about that. That's, that's a no-no. So I said, okay, voluntary population optimization. <laughs> so anyway, um, I don't like the control word, and I think that's where it started going wrong. Um, so we, we are working with, with women and girls, and it is beginning to work. So the women around around Gombe, I would say at the beginning, it was expected to have eight to ten children at least. Um, now it's down to three to four. We'd like it to be lower, but it's a big change. And the women want this family planning information. They don't want to be birth machines. And I think we see that through history. You know, if I think back in Victorian times, these poor wives, some of them had 22 babies. And of course, many of them died. But as medical care has got better and better and better, which is what we do in Africa, try to. Um, so the women are happier to have fewer children, knowing that they're likely to survive, whereas the death rate was very high. And certainly many women, my wife included, my mom included, are want to be parents and, and mothers, and but they also want a career. And so the other focus that we've been discussing in the course of throne speech priorities has been childcare as a matter of empowering women and, and bringing greater gender equality and making sure that, yes, women can be mothers, but that also ensuring that they have equal access to participate in the labor force as well. I, I wonder when we talk about changing minds and changing people's behaviors, certainly government's role is making it as easy as possible for people to do the things that they want to do in the first place. So when you talk about poverty reduction as a, a critical component of ensuring that people are pursuing a lifestyle that is more sustainable and that it's not just a race to the bottom in the grocery store or otherwise, we also have to change people's minds. And I'm curious about people that may have maybe changed your mind. I, I read in one interview of yours that you pointed to Peter Singer as someone who maybe changed your mind a little bit when it came to food policy. He's someone that certainly has changed my mind. And I had the opportunity to speak to him a few months ago on animal rights issues. But are, are, whether it's him or, or others, are there people that have had a, a deep impact on the way you see the world? Yeah, well, the Peter Singer is a good example because when I went to Gombe, there was no intensive farming. 
never heard of it. And then I read his book, Animal Liberation, and wow, I couldn't imagine treating animals that way. And so the next time I looked at a piece of meat on my plate, I thought, hmm, this symbolizes fear, pain, death. Not that moment on, no bit of meat has passed my lips. And as we learn how it's damaging the environment with destroying um, habitats in order to grow the grain, to feed the billions of animals, fossil fuel to get the grain to the animals, to the abattoir, and the meat to the table, the water, which is getting in short supply, um, takes a lot of water to change vegetable to animal protein. And then finally, during digestion, we all do, we produce methane gas. And as you know, a very virulent greenhouse gas. You have previously said the greatest danger to our future is apathy. And you've spoken very eloquently about the role of youth and changing our future for the better. And one of the reasons for optimism, do you see a, a significant shift speaking to people of your generation versus speaking to younger people about the very topics that you're so passionate about? Well, yes. I mean, a lot of people of my generation have changed and they've changed because they've gradually learned what we're doing. I mean, you know, when I was young, nobody talked in this way because it, it hadn't really happened. They hadn't started uh, chopping down the forests around the world, not in the way that's happened since World War II. But the young people, I mean, we weren't taught anything about this in school. They are now, at least most good schools will talk about the environment. And so there's a, a lot more awareness that's out in the media. And B, young people, I think there's a change in them. There's, there's some kind of change. They've suddenly, I don't know if there are such things as shifts in consciousness. Maybe there are. But they're so passionate, dedicated, motivated once they understand the problems and are empowered to take action. And that's what our youth program, Roots and Shoots, is all about um, inspiring young people, allowing them to choose their projects and then helping them to find a way of actually taking action, rolling up their sleeves, getting out there, planting trees and all the rest of it. You've also talked about advocacy skills and the way we can change minds in a more positive way. And in a recent interview, I, I read you compared male chimpanzees. You suggested they sometimes remind you of a number of male politicians. And I laughed when I saw that because I do think our the partisan nature of our politics, whether it's in the UK or Canada, doesn't engender itself to changing minds across the aisle in any useful way whatsoever. It's useful for winning elections in its own way and mobilizing its own way. But that idea of dialogue and open dialogue and respectful dialogue and making mistakes in the course of that dialogue and then changing our minds as we are confronted with new arguments and stories and evidence. I, I don't know. I, it's, it's a struggle sometimes in politics to bring that same mentality to bear and, and to make a difference. It's funny because, you know, I've done quite a bit of lobbying in my time in the U.S. mostly and going in to talk to people who think in a radically different way. And I found 
the most important thing is to try and find out ahead of time. It's just one little thing that you can make good contact with, like um, do they have a little granddaughter they adore or, or a dog or, I don't know, something. And you, you have maybe a 10-minute interview. So spend at least one minute making that little connection. And then it's no good arguing, because especially if you're a woman and a very young woman, which I was at the beginning, they're not going to admit to having their mind changed by some little person like that. But if you can tell a story to get into the heart, they've got to change from within. And it doesn't matter. I mean, so many of these animal rights groups, they want to take credit for everything. Sometimes that's the worst thing to do. You just make your point, go away, and then lo and behold, they come out with some solution to a problem, which is your solution, but who cares? If it's about making the world better, I mean, some people don't honestly seem to care about that. They just care about their own egos, as far as I can see. In the end, if the ideas that we champion are ultimately adopted, it doesn't really matter who gets to be labeled the champion in the end. If you had, um, this will seem maybe like a silly question, but this is the way our politics works in Canada sometimes, internally at least. So we have not quite weekly caucus meetings, and it'll be 150 plus liberals in a room, and the conservatives will have their same kind of caucus meetings. They're all virtual now. And it typically works. You get 90 seconds to have an intervention to say your piece to your colleagues and to the prime minister. So if you had 90 seconds, I might be a bit generous with, with your time here, but if you, ha if you had an opportunity to say, here's what I would like to see happen next. We know we've learned lessons in the course of this pandemic about the way that we have treated animals in our environment. Here's what the action that we need to see next. What, what would your 90 seconds be? Well, first of all, you would presumably work out your 90 seconds beforehand. It wouldn't <laughs> sometimes, yes, sometimes. <laughs> um, so in, in I'll be the, that's why I say I'll be generous with the 90 seconds. <laughs> no, because, you know, I've already said it. And I, I think that, that we, we do need a new way to interact with nature. We do need to respect the natural world and the animals and realize that we're part of it and depend upon it. Uh, we must stop stealing the future from our children, which we are doing as we destroy the environment and because of climate change and so on. And then maybe the, the, main, the main message of Roots and Shoots, remember that every single day that you live, you make some impact on the planet and you have a choice as to what kind of impact you're going to make. And do you have, with that in mind, 21 years ago now you wrote Reasons for Hope, and I went through the four reasons, and I, I completely understand the first one. I, I feel it the same way that I, I see the changing attitudes towards our environment animals among younger Canadians and younger people around the world, and even in their habits, we start to see more vegetarians, more vegans, more people who are willing to spend their time devoted to, to these causes. And then I see the power of the human brain. I think, well, that the moral capacity to love and care and to empathize with other animals, that can lead us to a very positive place, but the pursuit of profit and different ways of devising uh, achieving that profit 
uh, at all costs in some cases is also a product of the, the power of the human brain. And I wonder when we combine the power of the human brain with the power of social media, if you reflecting 21 years later, you have the same reasons for hope and reasons for optimism that you had 21 years ago. Well, sort of, but it's obviously in those years, we've seen an awful lot of damage done. And sometimes it's harder when you, you know, you read all the news each day and it's very hard not to be depressed sometimes when you see countries opening up coal mines. I mean, they're just not listening. And how do you get through to people like that? I don't know. Our pension plan just, uh, the Canada pension plan just invested in uh, in coal. It, it, you're left shaking your head. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, um, but you know, when, when I'm talking about the human brain, I always make a difference between intelligence and the intellect. And I always end up by saying it's only when the head and the heart work in harmony that we'll attain our true human potential. So. Yes, our intellect's amazing. It's taken us to the moon. I mean, there's a full moon now. Look up at it if you have a clear sky. And just that feeling of awe that I had when the first man walked on the moon. And look up at it and say, wow, somebody walked up there. A human being walked up there. That's amazing. And so how come this most intellectual creature that can go to the moon and even Mars destroy its only home. That is a lack of intelligence. And a lot of what we're doing shows a lack of wisdom. And the wisdom comes when head and heart work in harmony, I think. So it's the same the same reason to hope. Our intellect got us into a lot of this mess, but our intellect combined with our heart can get us out of a lot of it, at least start healing the harm and slow down climate change. And do you see social media with the same optimism? Just when you think I began at Gombe, there were no computers, there was no cell phones. I had a pair of old binoculars because we couldn't afford, you know, expensive ones, a notebook and a, and a, and a pencil an old second-hand army tent, and I didn't even have a typewriter to start with. It was all handwritten. And a letter would take at least two weeks to get to England and back, which is how I shared information, unless it was really exciting, and then an expensive telegram. Think how it's changed since then. And so much of it, I mean, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, but for media. And the advances are amazing. We're using a lot of them in our research, too, the drones and the satellite imagery and GPS and all of this thing. these things are helping us with the research. I think of them uh, much like these are tools. And we, if we care about, in the end, winning the day with the ideas for which we're passionate about protecting the planet and changing our attitudes towards animals and reducing poverty and more, then these are tools with which we have to use in, in order to, to best win the day. And yes, others will use the very same tools in a more negative way, but that doesn't distract from the importance and necessity of using these tools to, to advance the cause. No, that's right. And I mean, you know, social media use in the right way with the press of a button 
you can gather people from all over the world to take part in some some major event to promote respect for animals or something like that. We couldn't have done that before. I've been on calls, and I'm sure you've been on similar ones, where they've been virtual rallies of 700 people all on their computer screens at the same time. It's quite incredible to watch. It is. You mentioned your mother, and the reason I have come to uh, look up to your advocacy is in many respects because of my mother who raised me vegetarian, and we are both now vegan. Here, come come just one sec. She's like peeking her head in, and she's just got to come say hi. I do. Oh, no, and here's mine. That's, that's her mind. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. For all you <laughs> I'm sure that you're very proud of your son. Yes, I'm very proud of my son. Thank you. My mother was asked a question by a journalist right at the beginning. And he said, are you proud of your daughter? And she said, what would you say if I said no? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Thank you. Uh, a testament to the impact that parents can have on us. And it, it also, when I did speak to Peter Singer, he's been on about, and rightly so, this notion of how can we make the biggest difference in life? But it's a really hard question to answer because you make a huge difference if you are a stockbroker that saves up a bunch of money and then donates it to an institute like the Jane Goodall Institute of Canada. But how to compare that difference making, which is more quantifiable, perhaps in some cases, to the difference of a life that has touched others and inspired others to go off and do other really important things. And so, and parents obviously make such a difference on that. Problem. They certainly, certainly do. Even with chimps, chimps with supportive mothers um, when they're young do better. And the males tend to get a higher position. They're more self-assured and they've had a supported mother. So they, pr- they probably have more young and the females will be better mothers. So it works with the chimps too. Interesting. And obviously there are so many uh, lessons to be learned about humankind when we, when we look at other animals and we realize that we are not so very different in so many different ways. No, and also because the chimps are so like us, it enables us to step back and say, yeah, but but we're different. So what is the big difference? I mean, there's lots right. of small ones. It's this intellect that's, you know, and I think it was probably triggered at least in part when we developed a spoken language so that we could discuss ideas, so that we could teach about things that weren't present. Think what that would do. And I suspect that triggered this intellect. And then somehow... The hard part and the love and compassion has got kind of pushed out in this modern materialistic world. And that's what we have to try and bring back. And that's a very important part of Roots and Shoots, love and respect. Well, I hope that if there is that distinction drawn in a positive way, that our politics can learn from it and we can be less replicating the male chimpanzee banging our fists and more focused on those positive ideas and the exchange of ideas through constructive dialogue. And when you talk about the Roots and Shoots program and combating that major danger of apathy to our future is engaging young people in a way that you do. I've said before, but we can't change laws until we change minds. And so Jane, I really appreciate all of your advocacy over the years not only as a scientist, but really as an activist to change minds, because in the end, that's, that's what we need to do. And I would just say, I wish there were more politicians who think like you do, Nate. I, I appreciate it.
I appreciate that a lot. When the pandemic is all over, I had looked forward to meeting you in person in March at the you were to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from Humane Canada, and I played a, a small role in helping the bill to pass to end the captivity of cetaceans in Canada. And so I was to receive uh, some recognition from Humane Canada as well. So we were set to meet, which is why I, I had initially reached out. But when you when you come to Canada next, I, I will I will seek you out. Okay, then we can have a, a physical hug. <laughs> exactly, exactly right, exactly right. Well, thanks, Jane, for all of your advocacy. For those wondering how they can get more involved, how they can support Jane's work, including the work of the Jane Goodall Institute of Canada and its Roots and Shoots program for young Canadians, here is CEO Andrea Tether. Easiest way is for them to go to janegoodall.ca. They go to the Roots and Shoots page. They'll see not only the projects that we're funding and supporting, but the incredible young people across this country who are engaging with us and uh, really taking on and demanding change. So we're hoping to give them the tools and sometimes the financial support to be able to do these projects that really are inspired by initially Jane and now obviously uh, we have a role to step in and support them in that. So janegoodall.ca, all the answers are there and any of the staff members that are listed on our website, we definitely could answer their questions and get them involved. With that, thank you for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Thank you, of course, to Jane for being so gracious with her time. Thank you to my mom for her cameo appearance as well, which won't happen all the time. Do subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Please leave a positive review if you can, as it helps us grow our audience, as I hope to continue doing this podcast into the fall. 